Hey, what you're about to listen to is the podcast version of what was a live radio segment on KPFA. Consequently, when you hear us give out a call-in number, you don't want to call it. If you're listening to this as a podcast, it is already too late, and nobody on the other end of that phone number is going to have any useful answers for you. All right, let's go to this week's Corona Calls. We're going to turn, as we do most weeks at this time, to a segment we call Corona Calls. Our guest, Dr. John Swartzberg, Clinical Professor Emeritus of Infectious Diseases at UC Berkeley School of Public Health. Good morning, Dr. Swartzberg. Good morning. I don't have a ton of news to go over with you, so I thought we could go through a, a large mailbag full of questions and take some calls as well. Uh, I want to start with one that came in last week from Charlotte, who is writing about her 98-year-old grandmother, who, when she wrote, was on day 14 of having COVID. Um, Charlotte was wondering at what point they could assume her grandmother is no longer infectious. She was still on 14 testing positive uh, on the home test kits. Well, there's no solid answer for that, Charlotte. Um, the most people who are testing positive by the home kits are considered still contagious. But when you're out to 14 days, it's very unlikely um, Charlotte's grandmother is still contagious. There's just no way of knowing for sure. The PCR test that we do, sort of the gold standard, is going to remain positive for a long time and does not correlate with contagion. As I said, the, the rapid home test tends to, but when we get beyond 14 days, it's highly unlikely her, her grandmother is contagious. That's the best I can say right now. I think Charlotte should advise her grandmother to also look at in, in terms of her symptomatology. That is, is, is she really pretty well right now? Is, does she have just very few lingering, very minor symptoms? In that case, um, I would think that there's very little to worry about in terms of her grandma spreading things to other people. Well, Charlotte described her mother, her grandmother rather, I didn't read the whole email, as having uh, mild physical symptoms on day 14, but uh, some cognition symptoms. Her mother has Alzheimer's. Um, mm. But I, I, mm. I guess I, I'm confused by your point, Dr. Schwartzberg. Isn't, isn't the home test detecting the actual presence of the virus? Like if, if the test line is coming up positive, what, why would you rely on symptomatology to determine whether or not you're contagious? Well, the reason why I'm saying that, first of all, there's there's very little data on people out beyond 14 days. As as your listeners may recall, early on in the pandemic, we said that the period of time that you had to be in in isolation was 14 days with COVID. Then we reduced it to 10 days, and now it's been reduced to five days, given that people's symptoms are just about gone. So when we've looked at people with the positive test, it does correlate with viral particles being reproduced, but it also correlates with just some viral proteins being reproduced. And so it may not be detecting actual viral particles that are able to spread the infection. So I think that the way, the, <clears throat> the way I look at this is that the home test is a very good test for determining whether or not you're contagious still, but it's not the only parameter people should use. And when you look at beyond 14 days, there's unless you're a compromised host, that is somebody who's on immunosuppression um, or other serious 
compromised states. Um, it's very rare for anybody to be spreading this virus beyond 14 days. So you combine that with symptomatology with the with the test and try to make a reasonable judgment. Now, if her grandma, grandma is 98 years old and has some form of dementia, she's probably not going to be around a lot of other people. So maybe a, a prudent next step would be to say it's very unlikely she's contagious, but we're going to keep her away from other people for a few more days. But there's just no good answer for that, Brian. Yeah. I, is someone of, of that age kind of by, by default immunocompromised? Well, certainly age is a major determinant of how well you handle COVID. And, and, that, and what determines how well you handle COVID in general is your immune system. So yes, but what we're seeing with people who are prolonged shedders of the virus, who can spread the virus, it's really in people who have much more serious immunocompromise than just age. It really requires people to be on as I said, powerful immunosuppressive drugs uh, that just don't allow our immune system to clear the virus. There we go for a minimum of 21 days. Gotcha. That would be people, for instance, who are uh, organ transplant recipients who have to suppress their immune system to, to keep it from rejecting their new organs. Exactly. Exactly. And on some cancer chemotherapies too, perhaps. Okay. Um, there, there was a part two to Charlotte's question. Um, what can you tell us about how Alzheimer's affects the course of COVID? Nothing really. Um, we know that people with Alzheimer's disease have more trouble um, with most infectious diseases. It often really sets their Alzheimer's disease back when they get it. Usually that's temporary. Um, people with Alzheimer's disease, depending upon where they are in their course, may not be able to pay as much attention to clearing their secretions, coughing, uh, bringing up sputum, um, than people who are um, not impaired cognitively. And so we see that pneumonia is really a, a very common problem in general amongst Alzheimer's people. And as a matter of fact, it's, um, if not the leading cause, one of the leading causes of death in people with Alzheimer's disease. So having COVID is going to be a problem for everybody, but it's especially a problem for people who are cognitively impaired. Our guest is Dr. John Swartzberg, clinical professor emeritus of infectious diseases at UC Berkeley School of Public Health, and he is here to answer your questions. Uh, if you have questions about COVID, about precautions for the upcoming holidays, 1-800-958-9008. That's 1-800-958-9008 for your corona calls. Uh, next question comes from Kim, who writes from Staunton, Virginia. Uh, Kim says when she had COVID, she was basically bound to the sofa for five and a half months afterwards. And she is wondering if you know of any connection between uh, reactivated Epstein-Barr virus and long COVID. That's an interesting question. There's been a considerable amount of work on this. Um, with Epstein-Barr virus and some other viruses, now Epstein-Barr virus is the virus that causes commonly causes uh, infectious mononucleosis, um, where people are often combined, confined to bed for a good while. They're just so fatigued from that. There's been evidence and, and good studies now showing that um, people with COVID, at least people with more prolonged 
cases of COVID, long COVID, if you will, um, there's evidence of reactivation of certain viruses, amongst which is Epstein-Barr virus. Um, Epstein-Barr virus, like other viruses in the herpes virus family, once you get it, it's in your body for the rest of your life, but it doesn't bother you. Um, there's evidence with COVID that in some people, the minority fortunately, but in some people, there's evidence that the virus reactivates and may be causing the, some of the symptomatology. I'm going to underline right now, maybe, because while we know it reactivates, uh, we don't know whether that's what's causing, um, for example, Kim's long-term um, uh, stint in bed. So um, an area of intense interest, there's likely something there, but we just don't know for sure yet. So the, the reactivation of the virus is documented. What you don't know is whether that is a ancillary effect of some other disease process or whether that is the disease process itself. Right. So with Epstein-Barr virus, it's interesting. Um, we call it the kissing disease because it's frequently spread through saliva, and people are usually asymptomatic when it's spread that way. The virus, once we have it, it intermittently reactivates throughout our lives. So we intermittently might be contagious with that virus uh, throughout our lives, particularly early on after the initial infection. So does this reactivation of Epstein-Barr virus, is that because of having had COVID and that's what's causing prolonged symptoms, or is this just something we would have seen otherwise? The answer to that is unknown at this point. But there's again, there's tantalizing evidence that maybe there's something about a subset of people who have COVID where it does lead to reactivation of that virus, and that virus is causing, for example, Kim's prolonged fatigue. Now, re reactivated Epstein-Barr is implicated in, in other diseases, right? It, it's something that's implicated in chronic fatigue. Uh, more recently, I was reading a study suggesting it might be responsible for a, a fairly large fraction of cases of multiple sclerosis. Yeah, I think um, the the data with chronic fatigue syndrome has been back and forth for two or three decades now. Um, but with multiple sclerosis, the, the data is much more intriguing and uh, and the science is much more solid with that. While not completely sure, um, there's pretty good evidence now that reactivation with, of Epstein-Barr virus may be playing a role in people developing multiple sclerosis or in people with multiple sclerosis having repeated neurologic episodes from it. There's, there's a lot to be learned. There's this whole group of viruses called herpes viruses. Everybody thinks of herpes as what causes genital or, or lip lesions. Uh, that's called herpes simplex. But there's, an, there's a whole bunch of other herpes viruses that infect human beings. And all of the herpes viruses, once we get them, we can't get rid of them. Our immune system can't get rid of them, but we keep them in check. But periodically, they often reactivate. And that's why people who have cold sores, for example, that's herpes simplex on the lips, they'll frequently, they may frequently get them because the virus is reactivating. So there, the, the research on herpes viruses for a whole slew of, of chronic problems that people have, like multiple sclerosis, is extremely interesting and important to pursue. 
1-800-958-9008 to put your COVID questions to Dr. John Schwartzberg. Uh, We had another email from Sasha, who was following up on a discussion here uh, a few weeks ago about what to do when Kaiser didn't have much by way of a supply of uh, this fall's boosters. Uh, She wanted to point out that Kaiser has a a form you can use to submit for reimbursement for expenses incurred outside the system. Uh, I will say I I made use of that form because I had to get my my booster at Walgreens before I traveled to see my parents on my vacation. And much to my surprise, uh, Kaiser paid me. So <laughs> look it up, folks. Um, D- Dr. Schwartzberg, that kind of raises a, a more global question that I wanted to go over with you, which is we are less than a month out now from uh, the, the kickoff to the season where people really start to, to gather as family units for holidays. Um, what, what are the trends looking like? How, how risky is indoor gathering? Well, indoor gathering is risky for all respiratory infections. Um, and so we, we pay a lot of attention to the trends. And the good news right now is that COVID is on the decline um, in terms of hospitalizations and deaths, ER visits. We, we really reached our zenith probably about a month, maybe, maybe a little bit, bit further than that ago. And it's been slowly declining right now. Um, we've seen this pattern before and then it raises its ugly head up back in December or January. But it's it's good news for COVID that there seems to be a little less virus circulating right now. Now, when I say that, I'm, I want to emphasize seems to be less virus circulating because we just don't, we're not keeping track of how many cases of COVID are occurring either here in the United States or really worldwide. But things look better with COVID than they did during that mini surge that we had um, in the summer, late summer. With influenza, the news also is pretty good. Um, The numbers are going up nationally, but they're not going up dramatically. The the western states seem to have a little more influenza than other states around the country right now, but not a lot more. And we're still below that threshold where we consider influenza to be a serious problem. So I think we're seeing a typical influenza pattern so far, and that is we're starting to see in the fall a rise in cases, and influenza typically reaches its zenith in January. So influenza right now is fairly quiescent. Um, It's a great time right now to be getting your vaccine. The other virus that's circulating that that worries everybody is respiratory syncytial virus, RRSV. And that has, especially in the South, um, has been a a bigger problem, not an enormous problem yet, but it has been a bigger problem. And we are seeing RSV activity here in in, uh, California, and it seems to be rising a little bit. So that's, those are the three, COVID, influenza, and RSV. And they all right now are not causing a lot of illness, um, but a month from now, we'll probably, see, I think it's pretty safe to say we'll see more cases of all three of those, but how much more, we just don't know at this point. The good news for all three of those is we have a vaccine for each of those now. RSV was always the outlier, but now this year we have a vaccine for that. I got, my wife and I got our vaccine over a month ago. 
Um, so I would encourage people to get that if you can get it. Uh, there's a little bit of a short supply right now. Yeah, it's not uh, as easy as flu or COVID either. I, I took my father to get his booster when I was out visiting. Um, and it, it was the, the pharmacy inside a Costco and, and they had the RSV vaccine, but they wouldn't administer it without a prescription, even though he's, you know, over over 65, over the, the age at which it's recommended. Um, why, why the additional hurdles on, on that shot? There's been a, a, not a dramatic shortage of it, but there's been somewhat of a shortage of it. So um, the CDC came out about a week ago and said, it should be prioritized for infants. That's where it has its greatest morbidity and mortality. The next group that has its greatest morbidity and mortality are people 60 and over. And so that would be the second group to get it. But right now it's being prioritized for infants. So some institutions are really reserving it for infants. Other institutions are making it most available for infants, but having some available for the general public. So it's just there just hasn't been enough of enough of the vaccine rolling out at this point. Hopefully that will change. The other problem with the RSV vaccine is that this is the first year it's been available. So most people aren't really aware, weren't even aware of the virus RSV, much less aware that there was a vaccine for it, and much less aware of of all the data that suggests it's both very safe and very efficacious. So there's a lot more education that needs to take place, and I'm afraid that's not going to happen all this fall and winter. It's going to take some time, a year or two years or three years for the American public to understand that, hey, we have really good and safe vaccines for the three major respiratory pathogens. Yeah. I mean, even COVID, last time I saw a top line number about the booster uptake level, it was about 3% of the eligible Yeah, the, the, the COVID numbers um, in terms of people getting the vaccine so far with the updated vaccine, <clears throat> they've not been great. But... Um, tucked into that, it's interesting, there's just some data that came out from the uh, CDC just a few days ago, suggesting that um, even though a lot of people haven't gotten their COVID vaccine yet, most people are planning on getting it, which has been very mm. encouraging because we haven't always seen that. So the, the large majority of people, when, when interviewed, they state that they're planning on getting the vaccine. They just haven't gotten it as yet. And one of the other interesting things in that data is that uh, we've always seen a, a low uptake in um, uh, Latinos and in African-Americans. Uh, this year with the updated vaccine, we've seen a much better uptake in those two populations. And those two populations have been hit particularly hard since the pandemic began with uh, SARS-CoV-2. So that was encouraging. So Maybe people are just sort of holding off a little bit with the new vaccine and plan on getting it um, perhaps early this month, which would be a great time to get it with Thanksgiving coming up. Or they're waiting till they're more than a couple months out from their last infection because COVID doesn't have a season. Uh, we've got a couple people who've been waiting patiently on the phone lines. Let's start with Lisa in Sonoma. Good morning, Lisa. Good morning. How are you? Um so uh, my question is, um, or what I wanted to say was, my husband and I last week uh, were over 65, and we got our COVID shot. And so now we want to get the RSV vaccine and the influenza uh, shot now. Is that a good idea to do it now, and should we do it together? Got it. Um 
Real important question, Lisa. The It would be fine to get the flu shot now. It would be fine to get the RSV shot now. Flu plus flu and the COVID vaccine have been given at the same time, have been adequately studied and shown to be safe, and you get a good immune response from both of those. RSV with flu or influenza have not been as thoroughly studied in terms of how well it will work if you give them together. But everything we understand currently and everything we understand from vaccines in general suggests that it should be fine to take the RSV shot along with the flu shot or along with the COVID shot. If you want to be um, just go by the data, then get the flu shot now and wait a week, get the RSV shot um, or vice versa. But you want to get uh, both of those uh, at least a couple weeks before Thanksgiving. How long does it take to, to hit like your peak antibody production from that flu shot? Generally speaking, two weeks. Although when you look at um, the antibody production after seven days, it's really very good. Um, but we say that you should really, a rule of thumb is roughly two weeks for all three of these vaccines. That's when you reach your mm. peak. <clears throat> and then how long do you stay near that peak with the flu shot? That depends upon, with the flu shot, unfortunately, it, it drops pretty quickly. We lose about 10%. This is, again, a rule of thumb, but we lose about 10% of efficacy every month. So if we had high percentage, let's say we had 70% efficacy or 60% efficacy uh, at, at its peak, then we would have about 10% less a month later and 10% month, a month later and so on. So you can see where if the influenza season is a typical one, um, it really we start to see considerable number of cases later in December, right around Christmas time, and then it, influenza typically peaks at the end of January, maybe early February, and then is gone after pretty much gone after the end of March. So if you if you got your influenza vaccine in, in August, you're unlikely to have really very good protection when influenza is. is probably going to be circulating in high amounts. So that's why now is a good time to get it. It's, it's if you like get it now, your... you're, you're, you're hitting that peak antibody production level before the Thanksgiving holiday. You'll have close to peak level for the winter holidays. Exactly, yeah. Um, you know, it's, 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 it's all trying to make a judgment based upon what we've seen in the past. Um, it's it's, it's guess, a lot of guesswork here, but this seems to be a prudent way of going about it. Now, the RSV vaccine, on the other hand, tends to give very good protection for at least six months, and the RSV season is very similar to influenza season, and we're out of the RSV season by the end of March. Um, so you could really, that's why my wife and I got our RSV vaccine about a month ago, because we knew we'd be covered through March anyway. Um, the COVID vaccine loses efficacy, as we, you and I have talked about quite a bit, Brian, um, uh, fairly rapidly as well. Um, after three months, the protection is considerably less than it was initially. But the protection against really severe disease tends to extend for much longer than three months, much longer probably than six months, probably out to a year. Again, we don't know with this new updated vaccine. All right. Dr. Schwartzberg, we should probably leave it there for this week. Thank you so much for spending another Monday with us. You're welcome. It's good being with you. All right, that does it for this week's edition of Corona Calls. If you want to send in a question for next week's, you can email coronacalls at kpfa.org. 
or tune in live to Call In Live. Usually we air Monday mornings right after 7.30 news headlines on KPFA 94.1 FM in the Bay Area or kpfa.org anywhere in the world. We put a little bit of extra work into repackaging this live segment as a podcast because it feels like the information is useful to a lot of people. We ought to make it accessible through as many channels as possible. You can help us get the word out by rating and reviewing it in whatever app you're using to listen. And if you want to pitch in some cash, we wouldn't say no. We always take donations at kpfa.org. appreciate it if you mentioned Corona Calls when you make your pledge. My name is Brian Edwards-Tiegert. I hope you have a great week. Stay well. We'll talk to you next time.